0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: I sat down with Eric Holder, uh, who served as a very consequential attorney general for the first six years of President Obama's administration. We talked about that, his life, his career, and the state of justice, and the Justice Department in the era of Trump. Great to be with you again here in Washington, where okay. Congress is back in session. Impeachment in the air, impeachment talk. I want to talk to you about the arc of your life and your career, but, but before we do, I want to draw on your expertise. You came to this town 43 years ago, to, and you worked in the public integrity unit of the Justice Department. Do you believe there are grounds for impeachment, for Congress to proceed with impeachment?
2: I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, If you look at just the Mueller report, um, there are grounds there for um, impeachment. Um, There were 10 specifications of possible obstruction of justice. I think that at least four of those are, are, are pretty solid. You know, the attempt to get um, McGahn to do certain things, the try to uh, do things with the, to get Sessions to take over the in- investigation. Well, I think there's clearly a basis for impeachment on the basis of Mueller. And then in addition, um, you know, the emoluments clause stuff. No, Profiting I, I think, off of the... Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's any, any question that there's a basis for an impeachment inquiry, uh, an impeachment investigation.
1: Before... Um, uh, before we, we dive into that, let me ask you about Mueller and uh, his decision not to draw any conclusion as to whether uh, the the president committed obstruction of justice. He cited Justice Department rules, that those were in place when you were attorney general. Did you agree with his uh, approach to this?
2: It was interesting. I actually thought that what Bob Mueller said was, was fair. He thought that because he could not indict the president, um, he would, the president would not have an ability then to respond to a, a charge he might make. I was really kind of perplexed then to see the attorney general say, no, in fact, if Mueller wanted to say that the president could have been indicted, he should have said so. Um, so I think that Bob conducted himself in an appropriate way, bar... And um,
1: consist- what about that? What about... You, you, you read, now you've read the report. Yeah. Uh, going back to his distillation of the report. He summarized it for the country many weeks before anyone got to see the report. Was that a fair summary?
2: No. I mean, what Barr did um, in the two public interactions he had with regard to the Mueller report was um, totally untruthful. Um, He said things about the report that were totally inconsistent with the things that were contained in the report. And it was really kind of puzzling to me. It was almost like as if, well, we're going to get the report. We're going to be able to read this and compare what you've said to what's in the report. And uh, Was he
1: trying to buy time? Or what do you think was his motive?
2: I'm not sure what his motive was, but I think the impact of having the Attorney General of the United States um, dissemble, uh, say something inconsistent with, what we had an opportunity to examine, uh, did a great deal to harm um, him and to harm the Justice Department.
1: Um, You you say that the president, uh, you believe, based on the evidence, uh, was guilty of obstruction. Do you think Congress should proceed? That's a different matter than whether they could, whether they have an inquiry. Is impeachment a wise thing to do at this point? Or, and would they be shirking their responsibilities if they didn't proceed?
2: Yeah, I think that they should proceed with an impeachment inquiry, an impeachment investigation. That doesn't necessarily commit you to actually impeaching the president. I think that's what people have to understand. I think you could go through a whole proceeding and then make a determination that um, you're not going to impeach him. You're perhaps going to censure him. There's going to be a sense of the House of Representatives and in that sense of the House of Representatives, you know, lay out all the things that you have found during the inquiry uh, and not send it to the Senate, where I think, uh, you know, the Republicans are likely to acquit him. Deny him that, but actually lay out for the American people. Put witnesses in front of the American people. Uh, I, I want to see Don McGahn testify. I want to see Sessions testify. You think he testify. will?
1: By the way, I mean, they look. Every administration uh, has its differences with Congress over executive privilege. Your administration uh, and the one that I served in did uh, as well. But uh, they've taken a very tough line on this issue of executive a privilege, do you think that ultimately the courts will compel these people to testify?
2: Yes. I don't think that the executive privilege um, that might have existed um, still is in existence. I think it's been waived. You mean waived. while they were in the White House? No, I think it's been waived. I mean, oh, the I fact see. that McGahn actually spoke to Bob Muller um, waives the privilege that might have otherwise uh, existed. And I think as a result, we'll have to go through a court process, but I think ultimately uh, he and others will, uh, will have to testify. What was your impression of
1: the way he, uh, at least in the Mueller report, uh, McGahn's uh, performance and his unwillingness to follow through on some of the president's uh, directions?
2: Well, my sense is that he's a pretty good lawyer, and I, my sense also is that he's probably a person with uh, you know, a moral compass. He understood that the things that the president was asking him to do were uh, improper at best, illegal, potentially, and um, he didn't want to uh, be involved in that kind of, uh, that kind of scheme.
1: You, you know Mueller well. He mm-hmm. was the, uh, you probably knew him predating your work as attorney general when sure. he was your FBI director for the first couple of years. What was your impression of his testimony uh, before Congress?
2: I thought he laid out, um, you know, in a pretty convincing way, um, what he found in uh, in the report. You know, Bob Mueller was never going to be a person who was going to uh, be political or, you know, I think Democrats maybe had expectations that were inflated. He's a pretty straight-by-the-book guy who indicated um, in that press conference that he had that, you know, he didn't want to have to testify. But even in the way that he did testify, he relayed important information that I think should be troubling to uh, Americans and should be the basis for action by the House of Representatives.
1: So do you feel, that, you know, a lot of the critique of it was he seemed a bit addled, he seemed a bit uncomfortable. Uh, did he seem like the same person that you, that you knew and that you worked with?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, we all, um, age, um, you know, and, and, and that's fine. But I think that he did uh, a good job in presenting the, uh, the results of his, uh, his investigation.
1: Um, the president, if, he, if there is no impeachment, uh, do you believe that he is subject to prosecution after he leaves office?
2: Well, I don't think there's any question about that. We already have an indictment in the Southern District of New York where Michael Cohen. Relative to the payoffs. Relative to the payoffs. You know, Michael Cohen's already in jail with regard to uh, his role. There, Individual one is the president. And uh, it would seem to me that a, the next attorney general, the next president, um, is going to have to make
1: a determination. You know, that's an interesting question. You, you came here at, in the post-Watergate mm-hmm. uh, period. President Ford. Uh, made a decision to pardon President Nixon because he thought it would be bad for the country uh, to go through a trial uh, of a former president. Uh, Would you have second thoughts about moving forward? There's been talk, a lot of aggressive talk about how the president should be prosecuted. Would there be a cost to that?
2: Yeah, I think there is a potential cost to the nation by putting on trial um, a, a former president, and that ought to at least be a part of the calculus that goes into the determination that has to be made um, by the next attorney general. Um, it seems to me this is, a, first off, a call that ought to be made by the next attorney general, um, and then, you know, taking input from the president in in that regard. Um, but. I think we should understand what a trial of a former president would do to the nation. It is, you know, the determination.
1: I think that shaped the determination that uh, that Gerald Ford made with regard to uh, cost the him. It may have cost him uh, his election in in 1976. Yeah,
2: it might have. But you know, I think looking back, I tend to think that that was probably the uh, the right thing to do.
1: Yeah. So when can- there's there've been some candidates who've been out there running for president saying, "We're going to move forward." on prosecution, you'd advise them to be a little more circumspect?
2: Yeah, a little more circumspect and uh, say, you know, we're going to look at the evidence, we will make a determination uh, on the evidence and the law, and also what the impact of such an event would have uh, on on the nation.
1: Um, You know, we we talked uh, about the fact that executive privilege is not exclusively a device that this uh, administration has used. Barr uh, was cited for contempt of Congress, you were the first Attorney General to be cited for contempt of Congress in the Fast and Furious investigation. What's different about the scale and scope of what this administration is doing and how it is relating to the Congress?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was found in contempt with regard to Fast and Furious, and we made witnesses available. We shared about 8,000 pages of, of documents, but that wasn't... Uh, so
1: there was a lot of uh, back and forth in, ter- in in the courts about additional material, and it took years to sort that out. Right,
2: and, all, and what we did, or what I did, was, as a matter of principle, say you're not going to get access to deliberative materials within the Justice Department. Now, all of these documents have now been given to Congress, Sessions decided that when he became Attorney General to turn all this stuff over. There's been nothing in there. I mean, you only find that I did what I said. I held back stuff that was uh, deliberative in nature. This administration has taken um, a fundamentally different view, which is to say that we're not going to respond at all to anything that Congress asks us about. Um, And the contempt it seems to me that they held um, Barron is far more justified than what happened to me in uh, Fast and Furious. But there's
1: really, uh, if the Justice Department doesn't move forward on these contempt citations, it is really a symbolic gesture, isn't it? Nobody prosecuted you for contempt.
2: Yeah, it's a symbolic gesture. I was held in contempt um, one day and I woke up the next day and I was still Attorney General of the United States.
1: Probably irritated though.
2: Uh, yeah, quite irritated. But you know, I was irritated with the Republicans not only because of that, but for a whole range of other things as well.
1: We will, we will, uh, we will get to that. Um, the uh, the issue of the Justice Department itself. I know that you spent most of your life there mm-hmm. as a prosecutor, as a U.S. attorney uh, here in, in D.C., and ultimately as Deputy Attorney General and, and Attorney General. And you have a very strong feeling about. It. I remember you and I having a bit of a a scrap uh, in the White House, uh, because I wanted to... Small scraps. Small scrap, yes, but uh, recommend a communications person, and you felt this was uh, an affront to your independence as the Attorney General. Mm -hmm. What what do you see in the relationship between the White House and the Justice Department now?
2: Uh, It's too close. There have to be. Um, there has to be a wall between the Justice Department and the White House. Now, the question is how you know tall that wall needs to be. But there are certain things that an Attorney General has to have um, the independence to do. Um, Free from White House um, interaction, you know. I remember when I was being considered, and I was up for confirmation. I think Pat Leahy said something. Senator Pat Leahy said something. You know, I always kept in my mind that I had to be the Attorney General of the United States. I was not the Secretary of Justice. The Attorney General is different from all other um, cabinet members. The Justice Department gets into trouble when it allies itself too closely um, with the with the White House. History has uh, has shown us that.
1: The president has said that he's made it clear he thought the Attorney General should be his lawyer, wanted his Roy Cohn, and so on. Um, And do you think Barr is playing that role? Yeah, the president's statements
2: were very troubling, and it's more troubling now that Barr seems to think that, in fact, that is his role as attorney general, to represent the president as opposed to representing the people of the
1: United States. Um, Were there ever any moments when you were uh, attorney general that, other than my 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 affront. Were there other, were there moments when you uh, got your back up and said, I'm not, I I don't think this is appropriate. I'm not going to do this. No. And I think that's one of the hallmarks, one of the,
2: Real benefits of having a good lawyer, as Barack Obama uh, was and is, uh, as, as president, he understood that there was the need for an independent justice department. I actually think that the White House during the Obama years um, was too standoffish. There was uh, there was great, a greater basis for us to interact with the White House. In some ways, I think you guys were a little too too sensitive. Well, it's
1: very made very clear that because of a sensitivity to not politicizing the Justice Department, that the White House Counsel would deal with the Justice Department. And if you had any issues or questions, talk to the White House Counsel. So it, it really was a, uh, a hard, fast rule. You work with uh, Mueller. I mentioned that. Mm-hmm. You also work with Jim Comey uh, as FBI director. They're very different. Yeah. Uh, personalities, um, you know, as you point out, Mueller, kind of a ramrod straight mm-hmm. by-the-book guy. Uh, Comey is a bit more of a, a maverick, and we just saw a report from the IG, the Inspector General at the Justice Department, that was a pretty strong rebuke uh, of Comey for leaking materials, sensitive materials, not classified materials, mm-hmm. but sensitive materials, to for what he acknowledges was to try and nudge the appointment. Of a uh, of a special prosecutor. What was your reaction uh, to that, and his overall role over the last few years uh, in uh, the 2016 campaign?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think first off that the baseline for me is that Jim is uh, Jim Comey is a man of integrity. Um, I disagreed with him with what he did during the course of the um, election. Um, the Press conference that he had saying that he was not going to uh, recommend indicting Hillary Clinton. I think that had gone. That was something an FBI director doesn't do. That was something that the Justice Department, the Attorney General, should have held that press conference. Um, but I understand also what he did with regard to that material that he, you know, he he got out there. I, I think his concern was that um, unless he did that, the information would not be treated in an appropriate way. And in fact, we saw that the release of that material did result in the appointment of a, an independent counsel. Um, so I think that he was technically wrong. And, you know, the IG made a, an appropriate determination, but I understand why Jim did what, uh, what he did.
1: You know, uh, my impression is that he is someone who at times arrogates to himself uh, uh, authorities that he doesn't have. The Hillary Clinton press conference was an example of that. And the second wave in 2016 when he revealed that he had found some emails and then at the very end said they didn't amount to anything. A lot of people think that that had a material impact on the election, that seems completely contrary to not just the role of the FBI director, but the role of the Justice Department, which generally stays out of campaigns.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I was, grew up, I grew up in the public integrity section, as you mentioned. Uh, the Justice Department is only supposed to speak when it indicts, um, you don't talk about somebody who you could have indicted, what you might have done. If you're not gonna bring a charge, you just are quiet about it. And people can then file FOIA requests and do all things uh, like that. And I think that was the biggest concern, the biggest problem I had with how Jim conducted himself back in, uh, in 2016. And I wrote a, an article um, about that that was, was hard for me to write, because I've, I've known Jim for you know, 20 years or so. I like him, I respect him. But I thought, as I said in that article, you know, sometimes good men make uh, mistakes. And I thought he made a mistake in 2016.
1: The president has seized on these things, uh, and the attorney general has suggested that perhaps the uh, the FBI uh, was spying on the uh, Trump campaign. But the president's really waged a full scale kind of assault on the integrity of the FBI, on the Justice Department, suggesting deep state, political, and so on. What is the impact on that institution of all of his uh, rhetorical thrusts? Well, first. We got to be real clear here, there's no basis for the things that
2: Donald Trump has said about the Justice Department and the FBI. Those are career folks who dedicate themselves to finding the truth, bringing charges when that's appropriate, who do it at great risk to themselves. And the impact of that is certainly on the morale of the Justice Department, but there's a long-term impact um, as well, where the Justice Department the FBI are seen as potentially politicized. There are going to be credibility determinations the juries are going to have to make between what an FBI agent says and what a defendant says. And having this president say that, well, that FBI agent is, is a political person in nature um, could have an impact at even the trial level. So it's totally unjustified and long term, I think, is, is very harmful. It is something that really, really, if I can say it, pisses me off. You know, that really, really pisses me off because I know these people. I worked with these people. I was one of those people. And to see a president of the United States go after the Justice Department, the FBI, the intelligence community in the way that he has is totally inconsistent with what a president ought to do.
1: You were the first African-American attorney general. Uh, And you hung a portrait in your private office there of one of your predecessors, Nicholas Katzenbach. Explain why you chose his... Portrait to hang in your uh, private uh, Quarters there
2: yeah, Nick and I had uh, I got to know him in the later latter part of his uh, of his life But he was uh, the person who escorted a young African-American woman past George Wallace in 1963 So that she could integrate the University of Alabama that young African-American woman was Vivian Malone uh, Who was the sister of the well my wife Sharon uh, Malone and and that connection, I was, I was a deputy attorney general at one point, but it, that uh, notion of having a deputy attorney general um, integrate the University of Alabama with my you know, now deceased sister-in-law uh, was something that I thought was special and was the reason why I wanted to have Nick's portrait uh, in my
1: office. Do you remember that scene? As a? I do. Yeah, I do. Uh, a, as a young person watching yeah. that standoff, at the University of Alabama. Oh, I remember that quite well. Governor standing in the door. Sure. I remember that quite well. 1963, um, I was 12 years old,
2: black and white TV in the basement of my small house in Queens, New York, uh, watching this really attractive young woman, um, you know, getting past um, the governor of Alabama with a National Guardsman, or the Army, I guess, you know, around her with Nick escorting her, little knowing that, you uh, you know, many years later, I was going to marry her sister. But I remember that day quite well.
1: Did that scene influence your kind of career choices uh, when you chose to go into the law?
2: Yeah, it did, um, because I was really struck by the Kennedy administration generally and by the way in which Robert Kennedy conducted himself as, uh, as attorney general. Um, I, I remember thinking to myself there during the Ross Barnett um, integration of the University of, of Mississippi uh, and the things that Bobby Kennedy did um, with regard to organized crime and, and standing up for, for, for civil rights as attorney general. I thought to myself, you know, this is, this is kind of what I'd like, to, I'd like to be able to This notion of government service is something that I think I'd like to do.
1: Your, uh, your sister-in-law, your wife, grew up in a much different way than you did right. in, in a brutally uh, difficult, segregated uh, South. It strikes me this is something you have in common with uh, President Obama, whose, whose growing up experience was different than uh, that experience, but who married... Uh, a woman in Michelle Obama who is very deeply rooted uh, in the community. How has, how did your sister-in-law, how did your wife's experiences influence your own uh, consciousness about these issues?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I was an American history major and although I didn't grow up in um, the segregated South in the way that Vivian and you know, my wife Sharon did, uh, through my studies I had a sense of what it was like. Um, and certainly talking to Sharon. You know, when she, <laughs> she herself was, uh, I guess, in first grade and integrated the, um, the Catholic school that was right across the street from where um, she lived, and the Catholic church made a determination they weren't gonna have an integrated um, elementary school, and they closed it. And so she had to go to a, a Catholic school that was, you know, many, uh, many miles away. And to hear those kinds of stories from her um, made real for me that which I had, uh, I had studied.
1: You know, you made a speech a few weeks into the uh, administration in 2009. Yeah, i sure, sure you love that one. Yes, it gave me a little bit of dyspepsia, <laughs> in which you called uh, America a nation of cowards when it came to talking about race. But in fairness, despite my dyspepsia, because it did create some political problems, mm-hmm. um, I, I went back and read the speech, and it was a very thoughtful Uh, speech, and you said there remain many unresolved racial racial issues in this nation. We average Americans simply do not talk enough with each other uh, about. uh, What are the conversations we're not having in this country that we should be having?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. I actually think that with the anniversary, the 1619 anniversary, first Africans brought to this country as slaves, we're beginning to have the kind of deep conversation about race that I think that we for too long have avoided. What I said in that speech is that we become expert at avoiding these difficult, painful questions around race. And I I understand how difficult it is and how painful it is, but if we ever wanna get to the place where we need to be around things racial, we're gonna have to have um, these conversations and on the basis of those conversations, take concrete actions, and so... um,
1: So conversation about that whole legacy of bringing four and a half million people here uh, enslaving them. 250
2: years of slavery, 100 years of you know, legal segregation, in essence, an American apartheid system, Um, you know, we still are feeling the impacts of that in 2019. I think people need to acknowledge that. Um, You know, I I see Mitch McConnell saying, well, you know, I wasn't alive when, um, you know, the slavery was going on. So what is this talk of reparations all about? Well, hey, guess what, Mitch? You were alive during the era of um, legal segregation when people got advantages and people, uh, look like me, were, were held back. Simply because of the color of their skin, uh, so there is a, there's a reckoning I think that this nation has to um, has to make about uh, about racial matters.
1: Do you uh, what, what is your view on reparation?
2: You know I'm, I don't think that we need to be sending out checks um, to people, but I think we need to take into account. You know, first of, there's a bill in Congress. Let's let's study what the impact of slavery and segregation has been. Um, on African Americans, on on the nation, what's the impact now in 2019? So I think we should have that study and on the basis of that study make determinations about, um, you know, um, measures that ought to be put in place to deal with the present day impacts of these historical wrongs.
1: You know, you mentioned uh, what McConnell said. There is this, um, you know, this tension because you've got a bunch of, uh, uh, of people in this country on the wrong side of the changing economy, particularly in rural areas and small towns, white uh, communities, and they, they don't feel privileged, mm-hmm. and they, re- they, they resent this discussion. It's something that Donald Trump has, has mined uh, that sense of resentment uh, about these kind of discussions. How do we get past that? Well, I think that's one of the things that I would hope the next Democratic
2: president will talk about to make people understand that um, you know white workers have more in common with their black and brown counterparts than they do with the the fat cats, you know, the, the special interests who this administration. Um, represents There's a you know I, I understand how the, this president has been successful in dividing us. I think the next president is going to have to hopefully be um, equally successful in making people understand that there are things that unite us um, regardless of race and on the basis of economic condition, economic deprivation um, that
1: should bring people of all races um, together. You you were a prosecutor mm-hmm. here in D.C. You sat you were a judge for five years. Uh, you prosecuted a lot of young, probably a lot of young black men and sentenced them. Uh, And then as attorney general, you were the chief law enforcement officer, but you also were, uh, you know, when Trayvon Martin got shot, I'm sure that there was uh, some uh, sense of identification uh, with him I know you went to Ferguson after the police shooting there and you talked about your own uh, experience this seems it seems like it seemed like a hard line to walk as the chief law enforcement officer and as a, a, a black man in America who's experienced some of the very things that those protesters on the streets uh, were. Uh, were, were uh, talking about.
2: Yeah. You know, it was one of the reasons why I left the bench um, a, as a judge. I only served for five years. I was a judge here in Washington, D.C. during the, uh, the crack wars when Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of the country on a, on a per capita basis. And I had coming before me every day just these, just these waves and waves of young black guys who I had to send to jail, many of whom, as I read their backgrounds, were, um, you know, similar to me, grew up in, you know, Similar kinds of conditions. Now, just uncomfortable doing that. That's why I decided to become a U.S. attorney to be uh, on the side of making determinations about who I was going to prosecute and prosecute them for what, ask for what kinds of, uh, of sentences. I mean, we need to hold people individually accountable for um, the things that they do, but we also have to take into account as we use the the power of the Justice Department, of our justice system, um, these systemic factors that tend to breed crime and that put people at um, disadvantages and push them into choices that, uh, were they given a fair shot, they would not otherwise make.
1: you That was a major thrust of your six years in the Justice Department, criminal justice reform, uh, reforming uh, some sentencing mm-hmm. uh, relative to drug, low-level drug use and so on. Um, how much of the opposition to President Obama do you think was rooted in, in race? It's an interesting question, and I've wrestled with that.
2: Um, it was certainly a political dimension to it, but I wonder how much of that that comes off as political in the back of the minds of people who were not overtly racist, how, many, how much of that was, in fact, racially motivated?
1: They looked at this guy and said, you know, he's different. But um, well, he also was a symbol of change. And, uh, you know, that is a major tension in our politics. Uh, we're becoming a much more diverse country. Yeah. Um, that's discomforting uh, to, to, to some Americans. Uh, and he was a symbol uh, of that change. We never talked about it. Yeah. Uh, we didn't think it was politically advantageous uh, to talk about it. But it's hard, to, um, it's hard to conclude that that wasn't at least part of, yeah. uh, of what riled up the opposition. Yeah, I mean, we we you know, we are familiar with uh, this notion of
2: implicit bias, um, and I think there could be you know implicit political opposition that is race-based. And again, these are not things that are front of mind for um, people who might think they're just acting in a in a political way. But the vehemence um, with which he was opposed, um, the things that were said about him, you know, uh, I guess the congressman's name was Joe Wilson. Yes, who, who, who stood up and, stood said, up you and lie. said you lie. I really wonder on the floor of Congress while the president was speaking. I really wonder if that had been a white president, would he have thought that that was appropriate? Now again, I don't think that he's thinking, "I'm standing up here because there's a black guy there." But at some level of his consciousness, I'm wondering if he thought to himself, "Did you
1: experience that
2: yourself?" Yeah, I think so. I mean, all the things that you can say about um, Barack Obama, I think you can say about Eric Holder in terms of political opposition. A lot of it was about, you know, the change that we presented. For me, it was probably I was a lot more outspoken. I think than maybe the president was, but I wonder also about this notion of uh, again this implicit thing that was in in the minds of uh, of some people.
1: You know, you and I uh, first met I think when you were heading up the vetting right. for the vice president right. uh, in 2008, and obviously uh, Joe Biden emerged as that choice. Uh, he's been under attack from some of his opponents, Senator Booker, Senator Harris, uh, for some of his past positions uh, against school busing, uh, for his uh, sponsorship of the crime bill in 1994 that they associate with mass incarceration. Uh, and some of the things he said about segregationists in the Senate uh, that was were laudatory. When you did the vetting, mm-hmm. uh, do you recall these being issues? Were, were they discussed? Was there any concern about his uh, commitment on civil rights or his approach to these issues?
2: No, not really. Uh, you know, I did the vetting with Caroline Kennedy and a, and a whole host of uh, you know, lawyers who delved into his his background. I remember, yeah. yeah, that was not something that um, was of concern. Um, You know, I think the things that... If it had
1: come up, I assume they would have registered with you.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, And, you know, I I think, you know, people evolve. And, um, you know, we're talking about some of the things that he said or did 30, 40 40 years years or so ago. Um, And I I don't think that there's any basis for people to believe that uh, a President Biden would be, you know, Less committed to civil rights enforcement than President Obama was. Now, I'm not endorsing him, um, but I'm just saying that people. Were those attacks unfair? Do you think? No, I, I, I think those things can be can be raised. It's then for him, you know, to mm-hmm. explain and to, as I've just said, you know, say, well, I, I might have been wrong then, but this is where I am now, and you know, you judge me on the entirety of my um, career, and that's true of everybody. You know, I think Kamala Harris has been. Um, Unfairly maligned as being a, a, a prosecutor, you know, as if that is something somehow that is is, is disqualifying. Uh, sure, the nominee it might actually be a strength. No, I think that's right, and I actually think if I was giving her some political advice, I'd say um, you ought to own that. You know, don't try to you know quibble about it. Yeah, I was a prosecutor. I was there for uh, the protection of the people of San Francisco and in and, and California, and I did so in a way that was uh, consistent with this notion of progressivism and, and, and fairness.
1: You're. Uh your, your dad was an immigrant from Barbados. Mm-hmm. Uh, you grew up in Queens, in a really interesting neighborhood. It was changing from uh, sort of Jewish and Italian right. uh, to much more uh, diverse. And, and a lot of very prominent African Americans lived in that community, right? Louis Armstrong yeah. and Sidney Poitier and mm-hmm. so on, and Malcolm X. Yeah. And you had like a brush with greatness outside of uh, Malcolm X's house when you were uh, a a kid. Yeah, it's a great story. Um, Malcolm X lived
2: on 97th Street. I lived on 101st Street, so four blocks away, in East Elmhurst, New York, zip code 11369. And uh, I was in a candy store right up the street from Malcolm X's house, and my brother came flying in and said, "Hey, Cassius Clay is at Malcolm X's house." And I'm like, "Get out!" He said, "No, he is." So I ran out, and there was, in fact, um, Cassius Clay. He had just won the title against uh, Sonny Liston, had not brother, really a young kid. Yeah, had not formally changed his name to um, to Muhammad Ali, and uh, he was there and he was signing autographs, taking uh, just interacting with us, and uh, it was kind of a you know bit of a smart-ass kid. And if people remember, during the weigh-in with Sonny Liston, his heartbeat was very high, and people said yes. he was nerves. And I said to him, I said, I was you know, I was 12 years old, so I was a kid. Um, I said to him, so were you scared of Sonny Liston? And he, he towered over me, and he balled up his fist, and he put it in my face and said, what do you think? <laughs> and I said, uh, no, no. You know, and uh, he signed an autograph for me, which I kept for uh, for
1: years and then my mother in one of her periodic cleanings. Oh my cleanings. goodness. How many, th- this is my story, man. Everything me. I, all of my, I had Jackie Robinson's autograph, and, but anyway, that's. Well, mine
2: said, to Ricky from Cassius Clay. It was on a piece of paper, torn off a paper bag that I had from the candy store. I mean, I can see it in my mind, and my mother uh,
1: disposed of it. That would be quite a collector's item yeah. uh, right now. You mentioned Malcolm mm-hmm. X. Uh, I grew up in New York at the same time you did. I remember very clearly, because we I think it was on my school. birthday, that he, he was, uh, he was uh, yeah, we went to the same high school, Stuyvesant High School. Malcolm X was killed in 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very ominous mm-hmm. uh, event. And it was part of a really turbulent uh, time. What are what are your recollections of that era and how that era shaped you growing up in New York? It was an interesting time. I mean, I, I grew up,
2: you know, I was born in 1951, so I grew up in kind of the placid 50s. And then, boy, the 60s just kind of take off. I think, with uh, the assassination of President Kennedy in November of 1963, Malcolm, 65, obviously what happened in 1968. I go to college in 1969 after the riots at Columbia. And it was just a turbulent time. It was a great
1: time. Columbia was a hotbed of yeah. activism. You, you were, you, you know, it strikes me that in many ways you're a straight-laced guy, and then there's this other part of you. Uh, and uh, you were part of a group that took over the ROTC building, renamed it briefly Malcolm. for Malcolm X. Yeah. Uh, it still exists at Columbia, and it's still called the Malcolm X Lounge. Oh, is that right? Yep, still there. Yeah. But, um, but you weren't predisposed toward activism as a younger guy. This was something that evolved.
2: Yeah, it evolved. Um, I was raised in a, you know, a West Indian family. West Indians are generally pretty conservative, not politically, but pretty, pretty conservative people. Um, my mother was shocked, upset. Mad that I was part of that uh, th- that takeover, so I didn't send you to school, you know, f- for that. Um, but I saw, you know, uh, as part of a generation that was against uh, what I thought was an unfair, unjust war, um, I became aware of um, my, my social conscience. You know, was was raised as I went through high school, especially when I got uh, to college. And it seemed to me that uh, you know, I wanted to be an activist. I wanted to be a part of uh, a part of the change.
1: So you went to law school. You went to Washington uh, in the post-Watergate period, as I mentioned, uh, and you joined the public integrity unit uh, at the Justice Department, where you stayed for 12 years years, prosecuting uh, corrupt politicians. Why was that something that appealed to you? Well, I wanted to go to the Justice Department um,
2: because I thought that being on the inside, you could have an influence on the way in which um, justice policy was shaped. I didn't want to necessarily be a prosecutor who tried street crime cases, because I, I just it seemed to me that the system was just unfair in a whole bunch of ways there. But going after politicians who um, had been given all the benefits that a society can give, had been um, given the public trust, and then had gone against uh, the trust that they were given. I thought those are the kinds of cases that, uh, that I could bring. I expected to spend maybe two, three years um, in Washington and get back to the center of the universe, which was, was New York, and uh, I just never made it back.
1: You, uh, years later, uh, as the U.S. attorney in uh, in D.C., you prosecuted maybe the most prominent uh, uh, corruption case that uh, that has been seen in this town, and that was Dan Rostenkowski, a guy I knew uh, from Chicago. Probably uh, one of the three or four most powerful people in Washington. Someone in the White House, you were in the Clinton administration, uh, depended on. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you ever get any pressure uh, from anywhere, uh, either uh, from from the White House or the Hill or the Department of Justice itself uh, in that case? No,
2: no pressure. Um, I mean, I was cognizant of the fact that Rostankowski was a big part of that unsuccessful effort to reform um, health care. Mm-hmm. You know, the First Lady was leading, the Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. um, was leading. But the evidence against him was, was compelling. And um, I didn't think that there was any reason not to investigate and ultimately charge him with the crimes that we had proven. The Attorney General, Janet Reno, was supportive and we never got, I certainly never got as uh, a as as U.S. Attorney here in Washington, D.C., any pressure from anybody not to bring the case. Now, I, I think I can safely say that um, you know, the Clinton White House did not try to bring pressure on Janet Reno. I think she would have shared that with me at some point. Mm-hmm. And so we were free to do, as Justice Departments should be free to do, um, bring cases on the basis of the facts and, uh, and
1: the law. At the other end of of this discussion, you became deputy attorney general, and there was uh, an episode at the very end of that administration. uh, You were in charge of signing off on pardons from from the Justice Department, and and there was a fellow named Mark Rich, a very wealthy guy, who had flouted the uh, laws over the embargo of Iran. They had taken our hostages. There was an embargo, and he fled and left the country, and then waged a very long and expensive campaign, including political donations and hiring President Clinton's former uh, White House counsel uh, to get a pardon. And in the final hours of the administration, uh, he got that pardon, and you signed off on that pardon. And that became uh, a real big story, a scandal of sorts, after uh, the administration. What ha- happened at that moment? And this is, this is going to be... a at a footnote in your very uh, long and, and, uh, and distinguished biography.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, I'd like to think that if people look at the entirety of my career, they'll say, you know, he did a pretty good job. But that doesn't mean that I was perfect. And I made a mistake there. That's one that I blew.
1: Why, why do you think? I mean, were you under pressure? Do you, did you feel
2: pressured to do that? No, it was interesting. It, it happened on the last night of the uh, of the administration. I was going to be the acting attorney general um, the, the next day. We were dealing with um, the inauguration of President Bush, and we were concerned about his safety along um, the route. The call came in, and I didn't do what I should have done, which was to interact with the woman on my staff who handled. All things, all pardon matters and say, you know deborah, what do you think what do you think about this? I just made a decision where I said, you know I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm kind of for it you know uh, I, I, I didn't really kind of weigh in in the way that um, that I should have it's something where um, as I said, I made a mistake, um, I blew it. I learned from that um, that mistake, I was certainly questioned about it during my confirmation hearings, and I think, although it's not something I'm proud of, I think it made me a better um, attorney general than I otherwise might have been.
1: You know, you tweeted after the last Democratic debate that perhaps Democratic candidates should stay away uh, from criticizing President Obama and his legacy. In some ways, your legacy. You, you served as attorney general for six years. You, you were involved in in landmark reforms, criminal justice reforms. You you, uh, took a lead role in uh, the debate over same-sex marriage, uh, for which you'll be long remembered. And then there were some controversies uh, as well. A few weeks ago, you said immigration, which was the focus of that discussion at the debate, uh, was was a place where you thought some mistakes had been made. What were the mistakes that you thought were made uh, on the issue of immigration during the Obama year? Well, I think the way in which we
2: were dealing with um, you know, families who were, were, were coming across and trying to keep families together in these, I guess we call them family detention centers, something like that, those were not working out um, quite well. But I think the thing that people have to remember is that we changed, and we didn't keep those things in place, and we moved people
1: out As of- President Trump says the Obama administration was, uh, the, were the ones who started uh, family separation. Now, we kept families together um, but realized even keeping families together um,
2: in a de- on a detained basis was not something that was uh, was good for especially for the, the kids in, in those families and so we moved to a, a different policy so mistakes were made and corrections were uh, were put in, in place
1: you know I, I think there's also that- some angst among the left about uh, the fact that there, there, there were uh, hundreds of thousands of deportations a year, the administration was was, was yeah. pretty uh, robust in that area.
2: Yeah, but you know, the emphasis there was on people who had criminal records, people who posed a, a danger, uh, a, a public safety um, risk. Those are the people who we emphasize uh, as, as, you know, deporting. You know, I, I think we have to have, you know, Democrats have to understand that we do have to have,
1: borders do mean something. Well, what do you think about the proposal that many of the candidates uh, embraced to decriminalize border crossings essentially turn it into a civil offense.
2: No, I don't think that's right. I mean, the law that is on the books has been there for about 100 years now or so. And to the extent that people are concerned about the ways in which people are being prosecuted for um, crossing the border for economic reasons in a nonviolent way, you ought to raise that with the Justice Department. You know, why is the Justice Department using its precious resources to make criminal cases there? I mean, we had the ability to do that during the Obama years, and we did not. Uh, so I wouldn't. Would it uh, send the
1: wrong signal to, to decriminalize?
2: It might send the, the wrong signal, but it would certainly take a tool away from the Justice Department that it might want to use in an individual case and for some reason. I know there's some trafficking, you know, human trafficking component there. Uh, there might be some other reason why you want to um, prosecute. Um, you want to prosecute somebody. But it is up to, I think, the Justice Department to use its discretion in an appropriate way. And I don't think this administration's Justice Department uh, is doing that.
1: Are you worried uh, that issues like this will, uh, will, will blow up for de- the Democratic no- nominee in, uh, in 2020 uh, decriminalizing the border, um, health uh, care for undocumented uh, immigrants and so on? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we need to look for solutions to the problems
2: that we confront that are consistent with um, who we are as a party, consistent with the Democratic um, tradition, but also the kinds of things that we're going to be able to deliver um, to people. People don't believe in government because they're promised so much, and then we frequently don't deliver um, for them. And um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't push, you know, for, um, you know, like John Kennedy, you know. We, going to go, we're going to go to the moon, uh, you know, how are we going to do that in 10 years? Well, we, we did it, you know, and there's a whole range of things that I think we, we can do, um, but I think we have to be realistic about the things
1: that we offer to people as we are seeking their Or they could be depicted in ways that would uh, advantage President Trump's message.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, we're going to be it doesn't matter. You know, whatever it is that we propose, he's he's gotten some. So good. the Democratic candidate is going to be labeled a socialist. You know, if it's Joe Biden, he'll be called a socialist. If it's Elizabeth Warren, she'll be called um, a socialist. Um, and they'll try to portray um, whoever the Democratic candidate is, the candidate is, as, is out of touch with the uh, with the American people. And um, we don't need to give him stuff that's going to help him in that regard. But uh so I hope that we'll be just, as I said, realistic, um, but consistent again with our, our, our
1: progressive principles. This president uh, is at, uh, in, in a constant war with the media, but, the, but you as Attorney General the Obama administration um, prosecuted more leak cases than any other uh, administration. And that was uh, a, a controversy, you subpoenaed Uh, phone records from the Associated Press uh, uh, threatened with prosecution a a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist James Risen. Um, In retrospect, uh, would you do it the same way? And how do you strike that balance between freedom of the press and the vital role of the press and national security? Well, I take a little issue with this notion of threatening
2: Risen with, you know, Prosecution. What I said was that no reporter who was doing his or her job was ever going to go to jail for doing his or her job. Our focus was on the person who actually did the leaking itself. The um, question
1: was whether Ryzen would uh, testify and and disclose that this was his source.
2: Yeah. and But I made clear, you know, if he decided for whatever reason um, not to share that information, he was not going to go to jail as, you know, I guess... Uh, Reporter had before in connection with the Scooter Libby um, prosecution. That was not what my Justice Department was, was going to do. I mean, these cases, and you know, we have to also understand, we're only talking about like five to, to six cases. It wasn't like we had oceans and oceans, waves and waves of these cases. Um, but given the electronic world in which we live, we now have a capacity to understand, to figure out, well, you know, somebody leaked some information, you can look at their email trail and all of that stuff and figure out who actually the leaker was in a way that we couldn't before. Now, having said all that, I thought that we needed to change the rules that we used to, um, the procedures that we had in place to make these leak case determinations, and uh, and we, we changed them.
1: The uh, uh, and, and one other critique that you, you hear now is, and I, I hear it all the time, why not prosecute the people who were responsible for the financial crisis, the financiers who packaged up fraudulent mortgages and uh, and and made uh, made off like bandits, why not why not prosecute them and set uh, set an example? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, let's start
2: so kind of level set here. First off, we got record um, amounts of money from the banks who engaged in these inappropriate activities and then shaped those settlements in such a way that the money went back to people who were actually harmed. So that was one thing. Uh, the other thing was, if we could have brought these cases, we would have brought them. I mean, that, the people have to understand, these are career-making cases. If you could have you know, been the prosecutor who bought the case of the United States versus the head of the largest bank in the United States. That's a career-making case and to the extent that we could have brought those cases, um, we would have. But the decision-making was so diffuse within the um, these financial institutions that we didn't think that we had a basis. I put the best U.S. attorneys that I had um, on those cases would have thought that we were going to charge individuals and hold individuals um, liable. And you couldn't make the case? We couldn't make the cases.
1: Was, uh, w- was there ever any sense that the economy is so fragile, we can't, we shouldn't proceed?
2: Yeah, there was one case um, early on that I got a lot of grief um, about where I said, in essence, that, you know, bank was too big. And um, I actually was concerned at that point, on the basis of what we uh, were able to glean, that if we did bring a criminal case against that financial institution, given how fragile the economy was, that it could have um, collateral impacts beyond just the, the the criminal case itself. And it was for that reason that I reached out to um, our partners in the UK, in, in Europe, uh, in Asia, to make sure that um, we no longer had to face that dilemma. And with those partnerships that we put in place, had that case come um, before me, with those partnerships in place, the result would have been different.
1: Um, you lived through Newtown and sadly many other uh, mass shootings. Yeah, it's the worst uh, day I had as attorney general was going to Newtown,
2: yeah.
1: Do you, do you have any hope that uh, Congress and uh, the White House are going to move on on guns in the wake of the violence that we've seen this uh, summer and, and be, uh, before this summer?
2: they. I think ultimately we're going to get movement, but it will only be because the people of the United States demand that movement occur and that the people of the United States put people in office who will stand for that change. Um, you know, I've been fighting this whole question of, of, of gerrymandering. and um, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Th- this policy, and you know, you, you have these... Positions where 90% of the American people are for enhanced background checks, and yet they are not acted upon And there's no political consequence to people who in, in office who don't follow the wishes of their constituents That's one of the really negative impacts of, uh, of Gerrymandering where people are in these safe um, these safe seats So I think ultimately we're gonna see a movement because my guess would be that what we have certainly seen in the last you know uh, month or so in El Paso and in, in, in Dayton um, coupled with all the other things that we have seen, I think people are finally um, at a point. Things we,
1: we reached a tipping point. Here. I
2: think we've reached a tipping point not only for the people, but for people in um, who are seeking elected office. I mean, you see Democrats now saying that we're going to we support an assault weapons ban. We support enhanced um, background checks. Where before, you know, we wrote I think Democrats were a little too hesitant, concerned about um, the gun lobby. This is a defining. Um, issue for Democrats as opposed to um, Republicans. And I think we're going to win on the basis of being on the right side on the gun issue.
1: Last, uh, uh, in this past week, we marked the uh, anniversary of 9-11. Uh, and it made made me think about uh, your own battle uh, to prosecute terrorists, and particularly uh, Khalid uh, uh, Sheikh Mohammed, the architect of the 9-11, attack to prosecute him and others in civilian courts rather than in military tribunals. You didn't win on that point. He's still sitting in Guantanamo, won't be tried till 2021. But others were. Um, why was that so important to you? Well, this is another one where, if I can say it, I'm really pissed off. Um, because I I'm think- here to help. I want you to unburden yourself. Okay. okay.
2: I'm not... Uh- I'm not a particularly braggadocious person, but this is one where I'd say I was 1,000% right and my opponents were about 1,000% wrong. I mean, I had the ability to look at the case that the military made when they said we should try this case in the military tribunals and what civilian prosecutors said, this is why we ought to try the case in the Southern District of New York. And all the problems that we have seen on the military side were predicted um, in the memos that I um, received. It was on that basis that I decided the case ought to be tried. in the civilian courts had shown a capacity to try these cases in the place, in the place, you know, where that incident had occurred, where, where Americans died in you know, the southern part of, uh, of Manhattan. Um, if that had occurred, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and his um, Confederates would be just a memory now. Mm-hmm. They would have undoubtedly been convicted I suspect, given, you know, the death penalty, and we've been talking about them in the past tense, as opposed to talking about a trial now that would be over 20 years after, um, you know, that bad day in, in
1: 2001. One of the most significant Supreme Court decisions that came down on your uh, watch was uh, was the Shelby County versus Holder decision, which invalidated... Uh, a significant portion of the Voting Rights uh, Act. uh, The Justice Department had had the power before that to pre-clear any changes in the electoral process uh, in states that had a history of discrimination. What has been the impact of that decision?
2: I mean, as was predicted, and certainly if you look at Justice Ginsburg's, uh, I think, really prescient dissent, um, states have gone to town and put in place a whole range of voter um, suppression Um, measures that would have been objected to and stopped by a Justice Department that had a fully formed um, Voting Rights Act. These unnecessary voter um, ID laws, the way in which you move polling places around or close polling places in in, in certain areas. All of these things I think... There was
1: a study that said that African-American voters wait twice as long to vote.
2: Sure. And um, all of these things would have been stopped by a Justice Department that had Um, You know the section that was taken out of the Voting Rights Act that is going to be seen as one of the worst Decisions by um, a Supreme Court. and It's coupled with you know Citizens United that lets you know untold amounts of money into the system We have the Shelby County case which guts the Voting Rights Act and then we have this other case That says that partisan gerrymandering just recently is okay that that suite of cases I think unfortunately is going to define the Roberts Court and the Roberts Court will be seen as not standing up for our democracy
1: on the basis of those three decisions. You and uh, President Obama have uh, formed a couple of organizations that are a reaction, in part, uh, to all of this. One uh, is to uh, fight in the courts um, on gerrymandering, on, on, uh, on voter suppression, and so on. Uh, and another is a more overtly... Political organization that is aimed at nomin- uh, at electing Democratic legislators across the country will have a lot uh, to say about redistricting. I want you to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but first, uh, you mentioned Citizens United. I know that that political organization that's supporting candidates is is constructed in such a way that you don't have to disclose uh, your donors. Why don't you do that? Uh, that was one of the things that. Uh, was objectionable about Citizens United was all this dark money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I,
2: I think that you know transparency. Even if you, even if you wanted to take off the limits that you know people could give, organizations could give. I would disagree with that, but if you said that you had to be transparent about it—that um, if you know the Acme Tool and Die Company is giving you know so much money to candidate X—that um, people had to had to see that, if there were lobbying organizations giving money, you had to make sure that Pete, that was that was transparent. Um, I, I think the the court, in some ways, when it comes to uh, electoral things, is, is naive. Um, and doesn't quite understand the reality that people face on the ground. And they have put in place um, a series of measures that have allowed people who don't have democracy um, protection as a, as a major concern, only partisan advantage have given them um, an unfair advantage.
1: But do you think that, uh, but is it, I guess what I'm asking you is, why not disclose, why not disclose your own uh, donors, and um, wouldn't that be at least a gesture in the right direction? Or is it okay if your your motives are good to take advantage of the same loopholes that uh, the people you're battling with are using?
2: Yeah, you know, in some ways that's asking, you know, Democrats, progressives to unilaterally disarm. Um, And I want to have, I want to have, you know, sufficient resources so that I can fight what I consider to be the good fight, and then change um, those laws, change those rules. We're not going to get help from the courts, but that's not the only you know avenue that we have. We have uh, advocacy measures that we can, uh, we can have advocacy efforts that we can use. Um, there are laws that we can change that would, in fact, require that uh, you know disclosure be made, or that
1: limits be put in, in be put in place. You. Uh you, you have been uh, very much a person of the law uh, all your uh, career. You're now in a much more uh, political
0: mm-hmm.
1: role. Does it, give you any, uh, does it give you any pause to be the former attorney general who's now out there trying to elect uh, Democratic candidates around the country? No, you know, I actually
2: see a continuity here. I actually see um, a continuation of the work that I did as Deputy Attorney General, U.S. Attorney, and as Attorney General of the United States. Uh, I am supporting candidates um, who will stand up for our democracy, who will stand up and protect our democracy. And I think that right now that is, again, another defining issue between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Republicans are um, content with being a minority party that has majority power and they are putting in place measures from voter ID laws, unnecessary voter ID laws, to, to using um, gerrymandering um, to keep, them, keep the power that they illegitimately got in 2011, to, to maintain that power. And it's the Democratic Party that is saying, here's the deal, all we want is a fair shake. Let's make this a fair fight. If, we, if it's a fair fight, Democrats and progressives will do just fine. So I'm not fighting for partisan advantage,
1: I'm fighting for fairness. Although you're not gonna support Republican candidates,
2: I would support a Republican candidate who was for, um, you know, a fair process against a Democratic candidate who was for an unfair one. I'm not here to gerrymander for um, Democrats. When the New Jersey Democrats um, tried to use the power that they had to, in essence, gerrymander um, the state, I stood up very publicly and said that was something that I was opposed to. I've done things with Arnold Schwarzenegger, the former Republican governor of, um, of California, was
1: fighting, a, a, who's fighting this for, against gerrymandering.
2: If I had, if I could find Republican partners to join in this fight with me I put my arms around them and you know be more than glad to make this a bipartisan effort but that's not where the Republican Party is
1: so there was this period of time when you were uh, actually uh, openly pondering running for president mm-hmm. yourself uh, what uh, what caused you to sober up on that uh, on that point family uh, did you did President Obama give you some advice about what it what it all entailed?
2: Sure, I talked to him about it. Um, I, I spoke also to my family about it. Now, let's just say I was outvoted in my family as to whether or not uh, we should proceed along these lines. You know, my kids saw what uh, Malia and, and Sasha had to had to deal with and what they continued to have to, you know, to deal with as the uh, the, uh, the kids of a, of a president. And so I had to take into consideration, you know, their, their thoughts, my wife's, um, you know, concerns, and also balance that with, you know, the involvement that I had with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. I was really concerned that I would leave this kind of in midstream. So it was a combination of my obligations, um, you know, to things I'm really committed to, this anti-gerrymandering, this pro-democracy effort, plus those family concerns that maybe decide to kind of pull back. Doesn't mean that, you know, I'm comfortable even to this day with that decision, but uh, that's the decision I made. Why? Because I thought I could do the job, um, because I thought I had uh, a worldview that um, would be good for this nation at this time, I thought I had the necessary um, experience, um, I thought I would make a, a good candidate and be a, a good president. And um, it was hard for me to pull back from, you know, those um, conclusions but I thought the decision that I made was a right one, given the familial um, concerns that were raised and the work that I was doing for the on, on gerrymandering.
1: Do you think there's something missing in the field? There are quite a few candidates out there. Are there things that you wish they had, qualities, arguments that, that are not being made?
2: No, I think, you know, viewed in its entirety, I think our, uh, our candidate pool is expressing, I think, all the, the right ideas. Um, And I think that we will end up with a a good candidate. Um, I just thought that, you know, as I looked at the field and looked at, you know, what I thought I could bring to the field, that I had some um, unique things that would have made me attractive as a candidate, and I think good as
1: a as a president. So uh, you had a moment of over exuberance, I would say, out on the campaign trail uh, not long ago, and you um, you kind of amended. Michelle Obama's signature oh, okay. <laughs> statement: uh, She said, uh, "When when they go low, we go high." You had a different interpretation mm-hmm. and said, uh, "When they go low, we we kick them." Mm-hmm. Um, uh, w- I was I was wondering the right wing media had a uh, a field day with yeah that. the snowflakes
2: on the right were all concerned. You know, it's like oh, give me a break, give me a break. W- what did you mean by it? It meant simply this. Democrats need to be tough, you know? 2008 is about 100 years ago. And um, the notion that, you know, John McCain, you're not gonna be running against John McCain, you know? Who's gonna stop that woman who said all kinds of was saying all negative things about, uh, you know, president, then candidate, um, Senator o- o- Obama. Democrats have gotta be tough. We have to be prepared to fight for our democracy. Doesn't mean we gotta get into the dirt with um, with Donald Trump on a, on a daily basis. We got to be strategic in how we use that, um, but we have got to be prepared to fight to be tough,
1: and um, that's what I was trying to say in, uh, in using that uh, in using that phrase. So, uh, knowing Mrs. Obama as I do, I was curious if you had any conversation with her about it. No, nope, uh, have not talked to her about it. I don't know. Uh, my
2: guess would be she probably would say, you know. Do your own thing. Don't necessarily in- involve me. That part I would, I might, I might have changed. But the sentiment of you know being tough, being prepared for a fight, um, you know, that's what Democrats do. You know, Harry Truman, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, Barack Obama. You know, we fight for our principles. We fight for what's right. We fight for the people. We fight for our democracy. This is not a time to uh, to compromise, not with uh, the Republican
1: Party as it's presently constituted. You sound like a guy who has a little bit of that candidate sensibility in you yet, but I won't get you in trouble at home. Eric Holder, All right. always good to be with you. Thank see you. See you again.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.